0: Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock worship sermon. I'm Pastor Stephen, the teaching pastor of Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, We thank you for listening, for joining uh, our preaching and teaching ministry. And and we hope and, and we pray, the leaders and the members of Calvary Baptist, we pray and hope that you're blessed from our teaching and preaching ministry. We pray that the Lord is using the preaching of the word to uh, establish faith, to strengthen faith, to promote sanctification, to bring about obedience for the glory of God. And that, that's, our, that's our hope for you. We also hope and pray that, that you are part of a local church and What we mean by local church, we we mean joining an assembly of people who are like-minded in the faith, the Christian faith, not just any faith, the Christian faith. Uh, You you sit under the leadership of elders. Uh, You sit under the teaching and preaching of the word from a man who is centered in the church behind the pulpit. We hope and pray that you're not streaming services, because the Bible clearly teaches that we are to leave our home, to gather with the people, to sit under the teaching and the discipline of the elders, uh, and to worship the Lord. And it's our prayer that you're doing that. Um, But we do thank you for listening. We thank you for supporting our ministry. Uh, we, We had an email this past week, someone asking for financial support we we don't want financial support uh from our ministry that's online um we believe that the members of the church should give uh this is our our gift to you um and so we hope that that you enjoy this and your family is blessed by it uh if you like to send us a um a comment uh uh, an email, a letter uh, showing your appreciation, we would receive that and we'd be grateful for the encouragement. Uh, like and subscribe, share this on social media. Um, we accept that form of gratitude from you. Okay, during the 11 o'clock service, we are in 1 Peter. We have successfully examined chapters 1, 2, and 3. And this morning we will address chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. So we're in First Peter chapter 4, we're in verses 1 through 11. And the scripture says, "Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to be to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Well, I, I know I said 1 through 11, but really we're only going to focus on verses 1 through 4 this morning. Um, so, um Verses 5 through 11 we'll address next week, so we're just going to f- focus on verses 1 through 4. According to the Christian faith, the Apostle Peter uh, is the author of two New Testament letters. He has written First and Second Peter. Now, obviously, Peter wrote these two letters prior to his execution because a dead man can't write. According to tradition, both Peter and Paul, uh, the two main apostles of the book of Acts, uh, they were executed under the Roman emperor Nero. And so suffering, persecution, mockery, whatever, all these trials and adversity, wasn't unfamiliar to the apostles. They were all persecuted. Each one of them, except for the Apostle John, was executed on account of the Christian faith. So Peter's words, they carry weight, right? It's not like someone who has never experienced suffering telling you uh, and instructing you on suffering. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's easy for you to say that I should, you know, conduct myself in this manner, You're not being persecuted. I'm the one being persecuted here. But that sentiment isn't true when it's talking about the apostles because the apostles experienced heavy suffering. And so Peter is speaking from experience and his words do carry weight to the recipients of this letter. And if anyone could sympathize with the early church, it's certainly Christ, and it's certainly his apostles. Uh, Peter's instructions to the church is about suffering isn't in a re- rebuking manner. right? He's not trying to correct them. He's encouraging them. He's motivating them. Uh, but his words also carry direction as well. He's, he's being directive. This is, this is how I want you to live from here on out. When the apostle says to the church, have no fear of him who causes you trouble, this isn't merely a suggestion, right? He has given them a directive. Do not fear the man who can only hurt the body. Christians are not to fear their persecutors. They are not to fear those who could potentially cause them harm. Why? Because fear causes us to fail the test that suffering gives. The life of a Christian consists of constant testing of our faith. Each test comes by way of adversity, and adversity carries with it some form of suffering. If suffering wasn't connected to adversity, then adversity wouldn't be adversity, right? The reason why adversity is adversity is because there is attached to it suffering and trials, difficulty. I've heard it said before that uh, and, and perhaps perhaps I read it somewhere I'm not I'm not sure I don't recall the source. I know that I didn't come up with this, but I heard it said before. That a Christian has either just come out of a trial, is presently facing a trial, or is headed towards a trial. Because the Christian faith is constantly a testing of our faith. The life that we live, the, the course of path that we take, that path is marked. Yes, it's marked by glory. It's marked by forgiveness. It's marked by grace and mercy. But it's also marked by righteousness and, and suffering as well. Christian life is full of adversity. Every day, we, we have to have the power and exercise the power to overcome sin. That control of sin in our lives that sin nature so every day is a struggle it's all adversity but how do we handle it do we wilt under the pressure are my uh, is 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 the heart and the mind prepared to endure it and this is a major theme of Peter's letter it is about suffering Instead of merely reminding the Christians that suffering is a part of their life, the apostle comforts them. We need comfort more than a reminder. We don't, none of us need to be reminded of adversity. But we do need comfort. And what's the greatest source of comfort when facing adversity? It's God. God. It's the Lord, it's his word, it's his spirit, it's his truth. We must believe God, not believe in God, but believe God, believe his word in order to successfully endure trials. We must demand that others hold fast to God's word during adversity. We must encourage one another, not just demand it from ourselves, but demand it from our family and our church. That all of us must be ready to endure suffering. But the reality is God's word doesn't make suffering easier. It's the accepting of God's word. It's the believing God's word. Because when we accept God's word and we choose God's truth in the place of the pain, that's what makes it bearable. We're committed to accepting God's word. Lord, whatever your word, whatever your truth says to me about my suffering, I am going to accept that. And I'm going to place that in the position where pain would be. Your truth is going to replace my pain. And that's what makes suffering bearable. Truth. Truth. And what is God's truth about suffering? Well, Christ has experienced the same. That's the greatest truth that we can understand about suffering from Scripture. That... Our greatest comfort is that Christ has experienced the same fires. The same fiery trials. Typically when we endure suffering, we, we usually you know, shut people out of our lives. And most of us take on suffering by ourselves. But remember what Jesus says. And be comforted by his words, Lo, I am with you always. We need that to be true. That that has to be true. I need to know and I need to accept and understand and believe that Christ is with me when I'm in complete darkness. I need to know that I am not completely alone. And Christ promises to be with us always, especially during times of trauma. And we must draw closer to him. And I think that's why Peter always returns to the cross. Uh, not only is suffering a a major theme of this letter, but obviously the cross, the gospel, is a major theme of this letter. Uh, Peter references Christ's suffering, his death, burial, and resurrection, the suffering in body, the suffering in soul, the emotional suffering. He he often uh, recounts those things in his letter. Back in... Chapter one, verse four, Peter mentions the resurrection of Christ, which obviously implies the death of Christ. Chapter one, verse eleven, Peter mentions the prophets of the Old Testament predicting the sufferings of Christ. Chapter one, nineteen, the blood of Christ, verse twenty-one, the resurrection again. In chapter two, verse four. Peter talks about Christ being despised and rejected by men. In verse 21, Christ suffering for us. Verse 23, Christ was reviled. Verse 24, he bore the weight of our sins. And in chapter 3, verses 8 through 22, that entire section is about the sufferings of Christ. And now in verse... In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4, Peter again refers back to the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because this is the model of life. And if Christ is the model of life, we need to expect suffering. Those who live and choose to live for God's glory, suffering will be a reality. Peter begins chapter 4 with the preposition, therefore, because he's connecting the sufferings of Christ at the end of chapter 3, he's connecting his sufferings to our sufferings, and in the same way that Christ committed himself to God, Christians will commit themselves to God and we will suffer in the same way. Peter says in verses 1 and 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. Be ready. Be prepared. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I've mentioned several times during our study of 1 Peter that the world in which these Christians lived in, the recipients of this letter, the people couldn't stand them. Pagans couldn't stand Christians. Pagans believed Christians were treasonous because Christians refused to serve in government. Uh, They were not devoted to civil causes. They didn't worship Caesar. The the Romans thought Christians were trying to plan insurrections, a revolution, revolt. But pagans also thought, besides thinking that they were treasonous, Christians also were they were slandered as being killjoys. Social killjoys. That's what uh, the Romans thought they were. The social activities that Christians refused to participate in were popular forms of pagan entertainment. For instance, Christians refused to attend a theater. Because of the risque performances. The pagans loved it. The theater in the first century, the Roman theater, wasn't a place where you went to watch movies. They were public displays of pornography. And Christians refused to attend a theater. Christians refused to attend chariot races, gladiatorial fights because of the violence. Romans made Christians fight for their lives. And Christians refused to attend to watch their brothers die. They were not sports. Prostitution, sex houses, sex trafficking, all of these were frequent pleasures of the pagans. And this is what Peter means when he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sins. Christians refuse to participate in these sinful activities. And so their prize, if you will, their their thank you for doing that, the pagans persecuted them. So the Christians had two options. Option number one, they could participate in these things and sin against God, practice sin, live in sin, embrace a lifestyle of sin, or you know, become like the pagans, or they could refuse, be obedient to God, submit to God's will, and be persecuted by the pagans. And Peter's response is, it's a no-brainer. The decision is easy. If the choice is a simple one. When we become Christians, we commit ourselves to the will of God. We commit to a lifestyle, a purity. And so the Christians, by refusing to participate in these sinful activities, they submitted themselves to God. They also, by necessary Derivation have to submit to suffering. And so the Lord uses the suffering to purify them. Sincere Christians, when we face godly trials, we're purified. Our faith is strengthened. We endure, we persevere, we we, the trust that we have in God increases. Hope increases. Character is formed. But the insincere Christians, those who just give lip service to the Christian faith, they are like the soil which receives the word of God with joy, but when trials come because of the word, they fall away. So these times of suffering... Or times of testing, and he either purifies or purges his church. Following the Word of God puts you on a certain path, and this path is marked by righteousness, it's marked by obedience, it's marked by suffering. These are all guideposts on the way. And on the way to heaven, because that's where the path leads, there's certain benchmarks that you have to hit and that you will hit. You will eventually come to the point where you have to choose between righteousness and unrighteousness, between obedience and disobedience, and between suffering and sin. The decision to follow this certain path will certainly be mocked by those who do not live this certain way. Jesus was mocked. The apostles were mocked. The early church was mocked. All Christians in any era are mocked and will be mocked. By choosing righteousness over sin, you will incur the mockery of those who reject righteousness and who love sin. The suffering has its purpose in God's plan of redemption. Suffering provides assurance that we are on the right path. Are you suffering for your faith? Then you're on the same side as Jesus, Paul, Peter, Abraham, the prophets, the rest of the people of God. In Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith, these are the people of God. And these are the people of God who faced different trials and they persevered. They never wavered. They were steadfast Christians who were strengthened in faith, though they faced various trials. And the scripture says and in Hebrews that these people are not sanctified. They're not made perfect apart from us, meaning is we're the same body. If you suffer like they suffer, you are of the same group as them. I mean, what, what greater hope do you need than that? Like, I want to be on the same side as Christ, as Paul and Peter and Abraham and Moses, David, Samson, Jephthah, Sarah, Joshua. All those people that Hebrews chapter 11 mentions, I, I, I want to be on their side. But there's a difference. The believer's life is marked by suffering. The unbeliever's life is marked by sin. Peter mentions some specific sins in verse 3. He talks about doing what the Gentiles want to do. They, 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 they have no self-control. They live in sensuality. They live for passion and drunkenness and orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Notice that these sins deal with like a group of people. It's what these group of people are doing. It's not hard to discern which group of people you belong to. It's look at your life. Do you belong with the people of God or do you belong with the pagans? Look at your life. What is. On the scale of Christian on one end and pagan on the other, which one does the needle lean towards consistently? The theme of these sins is sexual sin. They all lead to sexual sin. The pagans would get together for drinking parties. They just wouldn't drink because it's a social thing, They would corrals. It was a spectacle for them. I obviously believe homosexuality is a sin. I believe those who participate in the sin or those who support the sin need to repent or they will be eternally judged by God. And I don't mean any disrespect to the members of the LGBTQ plus community. And I don't want to be mean, but there is a clear distinction in the way that they corrals, the way that they party, the way that they assemble together than the way that Christians assemble together. This is, quote, Pride Month. Look at their parades. Look at what they deem to be righteous and good and, and true. None of it is. It's debauchery, it's it's living for your passions, sensuality, and orgies. There's a big difference. And in reality there should be a difference. We are Christians. When we assemble together, our gathering shouldn't be dominated by sin. tell you the truth, salvation is liberating. One of the great symbols of our baptism is that when we come out of that water, we're announcing that we, we have this new life and that we're committed to living this new life. We're devoted to this new way of life. And this new way of life is new because it's different than our former way of living. And so our baptism ushers in a new time of our life. Have you ever heard the phrase today is the first day of the rest of your life? That's true. The day that you believe and the baptism symbols it symbolizes the rest of the rest, the first day of the rest of your new life. And I don't think elders and Christian parents always do a good job of articulating this to those who want to be baptized. When you make a decision for Christ, and you make a decision to trust in Christ, the rest of your life is no longer shaped by your personal desires, by your passions and sensuality. The rest of your life is shaped by the will of God. And there is a difference of lifestyles of the person who is shaped by the will of God than the one who is shaped by the desire to sin. And notice I, I include the word desire. Christians will commit acts of sin. We still have this sin nature that uh, that tempts us and, 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 and persuades us, and, uh, and, and, and we, we at times uh, give in to it. It's that desire But our life is not dominated by sin like the life of an unbeliever is. And that's the difference. A pagan's life is dominated by sin. I mean, they do shameful acts. They love them. They commit them. They give, uh, they give approval to others who commit them. And so the difference in lifestyles is very vivid. The contrast is very vivid Our lifestyle is determined by the will of God. The other is determined by the will to sin. And the two cannot be blended. No one can serve two masters. Those who have been given new life through Christ will despise the practice of the Gentiles. And I don't mean despise in the way that will mock them. No, I mean despise in that we'll flee from those activities will be repulsed by them, by the works. And this new life will be dominated by the will of God. So that means lust will be lust for our brothers will be replaced by brotherly love. Walking in a drunken stupor will be replaced with a sound mind. Instead of living in idolatry will be Will live with a sincere adoration for the Lord. Different lifestyles. One life is marked by righteousness and obedience and suffering, and the other life is marked by sin, perversion, and worldly pleasure. One way leads to glory; the other, li- the other path, leads to eternal condemnation. And this letter serves as a reminder these Christians wouldn't trade this life for anything. You wouldn't trade the pathway to glory for anything, right? Would you trade anything about this new life in Christ for anything? No, the answer is no, we wouldn't. And since we wouldn't trade this for anything, we receive everything that comes along with it. We receive it with joy. We embrace it. We embrace and accept suffering as a gift from God. Suffering is like a portal that we must pass through. All of us must pass through it in order to get to God. If we want to identify with Christ, we must identify with his sufferings along with his glory. The exalted Christ is the suffering Christ. There are not two different Christ. God doesn't give a happy-go-lucky, content ha- you know, Christ to a bunch of happy and content Christians. And then, well, I got another kind of Christ, a suffering one, a toiling Christ for, you know, for these types of believers. No. The son of glory is the man of sorrows. And if we want to be identified with the son of glory, we must be willing to identify and we must be willing to embrace the man of sorrows. There are not two Christ, there are not two separate Christians, there are not two separate paths to glory. There is one Christ, there is one kind of Christian, and there is one way to God. And the Christ, the Christian, and the way to God are all marked by suffering.